Nate, good to see you again. Uh, I know that you uh, got a lot of projects going on on the air-cooled side of things, but uh, I guess I'm curious to, to hear about the R40 that you're working on for Pete's car. Could you tell us about what's going on there? Yeah, so, and, and glad to be with you guys again. Um, of course, I fixed it, right? Um, my daughter has this same shirt that says I broke it, and that's true because she's always breaking her dirt bikes or something like that, and we fix them together. But anyway, um, yeah, so just so you guys know, the 29,000-mile uh, car we're using for the focus on IMS bearing failure, we call it Pete's car. Um, it'll kind of always be Pete's car, even though I bought it. But Pete bought the car, 29,000 miles, all original. He owned it from new, and it had an IMS bearing failure. And uh, we, we actually interviewed him in the last couple of parts of that Focus on IMS Bearing Failure video series that you can see on our YouTube channel, RenVision. And um, I'm using this as a poster child about IMS Bearing Failure, how the bearing fails, how we diagnosed it, what Pete went through mentally, physically, and monetarily when it did fail, because people do think that this is hype. Um, and I brought that question up to him. And it's interesting to see what he thinks about that from somebody who's experienced it. And there are always people saying, well, you know, it's only 1% or 8% or whatever and blah, blah, blah. Well, and like Pete said, it's only 1% or 8% or whatever the number is as long as you're not in that 1% to 8%. doesn't matter. Um, doesn't matter until you've had it happen. And he has. So that's why it's important that you go see what Pete thinks about that. And if he had it to do over again, he very clearly stated that he would certainly have the IMS solution fitted to his engine. He just didn't know that there was an IMS bearing problem. So he had never researched it. He didn't know there was any inherent problems with these engines and the car never broke the entire 17 years that he owned it. Um, but anyway, that's the focus on IMS bearing failure. So we've got the engine all apart. I'm building it into a stage, stage two R40 street and track performer. Um, the car is a black-on-black, six-speed manual coupe, uh, C2, and it's the car everybody wants, and I've actually had people trying to buy the car already. I don't want to sell the car right now. I'm going to complete the R40 engine, the four-liter stage two engine for it, and then I'm going to drive it for a while, and probably in the spring, I'm going to sell it on Bring a Trailer. And I already talked to the guys that bring a trailer about that. And I said, look, I'm going to sell this car no reserve. You know, I don't care what it brings. At this point in time, I will have already gotten all of my benefit from it. I use it as a poster child. I had fun with it. We shot videos with it. And I got to throw my Mr. M9X license plate on the back of it. <laughs> and, um, you know, got to own a 996 again, which I've had so many of them, but this car reminds me a lot of the car my wife set the land speed records in. It's just a year or so newer. And, um, but, you know, but at the end of the day, I'm ready to start putting the engine back together again. So all the pieces have arrived. Um, the block is back from plating. Um, the cylinder heads are done. We did a, a really nice job on the cylinder heads, all for Rhea valves. It's got my top end. Uh, valve train kit. Um, it's got everything. All the R40 stuff is, is applied to this engine. So, you know, it was an open checkbook affair. Didn't matter what it cost. And, you know, it's going to be a good car for somebody. And people say, well, why don't you keep it? And I'm like, well, I'm currently selling all my other Porsches as well, all my air-cooled cars except for one. So I don't really want to keep this car. And I'm focusing on military vehicles and um, probably buying an airplane in the next few months because I'm working on getting my license. But anyway, um, yeah, that's kind of what's going on with that. So it's ready to go together and I'm going to be shooting more videos from the engine room as I put that engine together. Uh, I'm going to, we'll, we'll have probably two or three segments in the series about putting the engine together, um, you know, how to prepare it and that sort of thing. On Tuesday of this week, I'll be balancing the components for the engine. Yeah, so I'll be shooting to say, video You want to share with everybody uh, the components that go into this engine? I know that you have special made pistons for the R40 series, yeah. and uh, well, and I'm assuming the LN work is is Nicosil bore, mm -hmm. uh, bored out the 4.0. Yeah, and it'll be it will we'll, we'll, I will loosely let people follow it. It's not going to be an engine rebuild video. You and I have already done the M9X engine rebuild video. I'm not going to be sitting there showing people how to tighten nuts and bolts and where everything goes. But it's going to be a series of overviews. Like, okay, now I've got 
the crankshaft carrier built. Now I'm going to put it in the block, okay? Now the block is ready to go together. I'm going to put the bank two case half on it. <clears throat> That's the kind of stuff that I'm going to do. You'll get to see the pick pieces. You'll get to understand the basics about how we build the engine and what goes into that. But it's more the process and the attention to detail that it gets, not as much bolting it together because there's a video series you can buy <clears throat> that you and I did that show engine builders and enthusiasts alike how to build the engine. That's not what this is about. This is about how we resurrect and in M96 or 97 engine and make it into a flat six innovations performer series engine. All the steps, all the things it takes, and the reason why it's a four month process time from when the engine comes apart to when it goes back together again. And that's after somebody's been in the queue basically for eight months, okay? It's a general rule. Um, but that's where it stands. The car has been to North Atlanta custom detailing. They do all the ceramic the ceramic work and all the detail uh, cleaning of my personal cars. So I had them go ahead and do a paint correction on this car. And the depth of that black paint is incredible now. And they did the, the, the G-Technic uh, ceramic coating, apl professionally applied. They detailed the whole bottom of the car, steam cleaned the whole bottom of the car. It looks like it's brand new underneath. Cleaned the wheels, cleaned the brake rotors, detailed the inside of the car. Uh, it's probably cleaner than it was when it was new uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, but that's where it stands. And I've got the car, you know, in storage so tell, now tell at my facility how, waiting for the engine. The R40, tell us a little bit about how this came to be. How, much, how many years did you work developing this technology to make it available for M9X owners? Well, I mean, the R40 is just the highest build tolerance of a stage two. It's still a stage two street and track performer engine. It, it's, it's at home on the street. It's at home on the track. Uh, the R40 version of that is a higher output version of it. It's also an engine that I put together personally. So all the R-series stuff, I build it at the research and, and development facility and I personally am involved with that. So all the R40s are that way. R38s, <clears throat> any of the R51s, the R-series engines are something that are put together in a different world than a standard you know, stage two. And, it, and because of that, we even do fewer of them than the standard stage two. Perfect. Well, let's talk about uh, what, what's going on in the forums, I guess. All uh, right. So, may I tell you, this is, this is, so first off, it's not just forums. There's never right? a dull day, folks, on the forums. I mean, anytime that you're an innovator and you're a leader in the industry, you get, you, you have a target. You walk around with a target, no matter how well, hard we okay. try. I mean, see, people think know. we're trying to always market things, but in my opinion, this is about uh, public awareness of these, the weaknesses with these engines. And I love education, and I know Jake loves education because he started the knowledge group, and he tries to help people learn about how to rebuild these engines and know about them and how to avoid pitfalls that are associated with these engines. But every time we try so hard to try to bring awareness to problems, then it always, it's, somebody takes it and turns it on its head and it says, no. Nope. Well, it's some, and this is the thing, man. It's there are motives that people have and they think they're smart and they're going to end up pulling the wool over my eyes and all the readers eyes right and, and they are associated with some copycat somewhere the copycat doesn't have the balls to come on there himself okay he knows that i'm going to spank his ass and he knows he can't argue with me and win they've learned this already so the best thing they can do is they either get a shill name or they get one of their friends to come in there and be this, you know, um, basically the devil's advocate type thing, right? And, and I mean, I see through it. I see through it on these Facebook groups. I can go back and do just a little bit of research and see what's driving it. That one guy comes in, he watches our videos, he watches Rencast, he's going to watch this. Hey, man, I know your gig, dude. I know it. I know what's going on and I don't care. And, and what makes me, what really gets me going is the fact that Nothing makes me smile more than knowing that I'm wasting these guys' time, right? They think that they're getting me mad. They have no idea that I'm smiling about it. They have no <laughs> idea that it doesn't make a damn difference to me at all what they think about me. As far as I'm concerned, they're not supposed to like me. They're supposed to hate me. 
because I am the opposition. I am the guy taking money away from their friends who were copycats or they were already using some of the products that I invented and developed. And they decided they wanted to try to take a piece of that and they come out with a copycat type of product. It doesn't make a damn difference to me. It doesn't cost me any money. All it does sometimes is allow me the opportunity to further explain things to people that I would never have the opportunity to do. And all I can say to all of you people, by all means, if you're going to talk bad about someone, I hope it's me. That's all I got to say. That's all I got <laughs> it's, to say. It's, it's, like, it's like they're hunting for something that's not really there. It's like snipe hunting. You remember the snipe? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, that, that's the thing. But, you know, Snipe actually exists. But, but what I'm getting at is these people think they're getting to me. They think, oh, I'm going to get him pissed off. Dude, it's, a, it's laughable. It's entertainment for me to sit there and argue with some of these people because they think they're getting to me. And they think that they take stabs about me not being an engineer. I'm proudly not an engineer. You know, <laughs> proudly I'm not an engineer. Yeah, I mean. You know? I and they asked me, you know, it's so funny, and they they want to know who I am. I don't, I'm not hiding who I am, but as soon as you ask them, okay, well, who are you, and who do you work for? Yeah, well, then it, it changes. The thing. So, they don't so, want to reveal it, who they really are, is, where they work, well, and all that. Because, kind of stuff. well, this is the thing, you know, it's one of those deals where they think that what they say matters but they are insignificant they think that they are starting you know, the way that they help their friends is by taking away my credibility but they don't realize that everybody they're trying to take my credibility away from is laughing at them as much as i am because they can see straight through it i get the messages about it i get and, and everybody can see it right so it's laughable the more they try the harder they're working against themselves they just they don't care. They don't have anything to lose because they're nameless, they're faceless. Okay. And as far as I'm concerned, they're they have no testicles. Yeah. And they it's, lack it's, they, they lack intestinal fortitude, as we would say in the Marine Corps, right? You yeah, lack I mean, intestinal fortitude. You don't have the guts to say who you are because this one guy, all he does is go around and read crap and he posts it. And so when I started catching on, or really uh, or knew who he was representing. When I brought that up and I said, this is what's going on, then what does he do? He starts trying to take the heat off of him in the kitchen. So he goes over and starts posting things on this group from Hartech, the company in the UK that's done a lot of things that we've done. And he's tried to pit the guys at Hartech against us, right? And say, oh, well, these guys are leaders. They're fought, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he did that because the people he's trying to help are not competitors with Hartech, okay? He wasn't trying to say Hartech was good. He was trying to do anything he could to say that we were not the leaders and we didn't race these cars and we didn't develop these things. I've got five freaking patents right over here on the wall for M96, M97 components, tools, processes, and bearings that prove we've developed things for these. And as far as racing cars go, my wife has five land speed records on the wall behind me, one of which she set when she was pregnant with my daughter, okay? They still stand today. So if he's too dense to realize that those records are still on the books, he's too, too dense to realize my name's on those patents, it's because it doesn't fit his narrative, okay? And, and that's the thing. So he tried to pit Hartech against us because Hartech is like the only competitor we have, but they're not our competitors at all. We share information with each other. Lee Jenkins, a guy that basically runs Hartech when Barry's not in town, has become a friend of mine. We compare notes. We share failure information. We see the exact same things from the exact same engine designations. And we collectively laugh our asses off about the, what things these people are doing trying to pit us against each other, okay? Yeah. He, he's sending me things to try. I've already sent him things to try, okay? We're not on the same page with IMS bearings. He likes to use the factory M97 bearings. It's worked fine for him. Hey. I also don't have a problem with the factory M97 bearing, but every engine I build gets an IMS solution because I invented it. And because I believe it's a be all end all and it gets rid of the bearing completely. And it puts a plain bearing there the way it should have been, okay? He hasn't used an IMS solution. He may change his mind if he uses it. I've sent him one to look at, 
okay? And we did this stuff years ago. So they are in no way, shape, or form a foe of ours. I actually like these guys, and I like the fact that they see the same things we see. So that's just the funny thing about all of this is they try to – they want to do anything they can to hurt me. And they, what they need to realize is I don't give a damn. It doesn't matter to me. And what they do doesn't mean anything. And, you know, I've learned a long time ago is you never argue with people like this. You really don't. Because the people standing around don't know the fool from the fool, right? Yeah. You know, that's the thing. So if you argue with them, it just takes you down. So if anything, I agree with them and I laugh with them. But I will correct them, especially when they say things like, we haven't raced these cars and we haven't had things proven. Yeah. I've ran these cars with these engines in World Challenge. I've ran them in freaking Grand Am and Continental Series, the old days in Coney, Coney Series, when these cars were professionally raced, okay? No, we didn't put our name on them because we put our name on them. Everything that somebody does is questionable at that point. The cars come to me in secrecy. They leave me in secrecy. There's never a picture of it. Okay, we never say it made X amount of horsepower because people know that I explore gray areas. That's why they come to me. If you are a gray well, area kind of guy, yeah. they want well, you to work with this. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, I recently had somebody say, well, you know, I want you to build this engine for this racing and I want you to go over the rule book. And I came back and said, okay, what I see here is I'm not looking at this based on what they're telling me I can do. I'm looking at this based on what they failed to tell me I couldn't do. And that's the gray area that you have to explore. So I don't want somebody as one of my customers to go through tech and that car to get ripped apart just because I've been there. Because something in that car is questionable. And that's why I'm there. I, I'm like the smoky eunuch of the Porsche world. Okay. And, and that's the thing. You know, if I can if I could figure out how to put uh, you know, extra fuel in your roll cage the way Smokey did, I would do it. You but remember, that's, that's, remember, that's because I'm, I'm about the physics. So you know, it, you, we talk, you know, this generation doesn't even have a clue about, you know, it wasn't very long ago that there, there was no internet. But do you remember back in the day when tabloids were kind of popular? Oh, the Inquirer, I, I didn't ever, man. I mean, they're yeah. laughable to us, but I never fought a single tabloid. But tabloids, like but that's National the way Inquirer, these guys are. That's the same way these these jackasses are on these forums. It's a tabloid to them. They want to create something for me that's a pain in the ass. I don't give a damn. That person to me is is a ballless, gutless person who is not willing to say who he is, what he's done, and moreover, he also is not willing to answer my question about how many of these engines have you built personally. That is my new requirement. Anybody on a forum, if you want to argue with me, you must first have an experience with this engine where you've taken the whole damn thing apart, put it back together again. If you want to argue with me and you want me to take you seriously, that is what you have for a credential. If you don't have it, don't bother. See that, and that's where I'm getting at with tabloids. And see, before social media and the internet, tabloids were the muckrakers. They were the ones that would stir up crap for uh, people to have to set the record straight on a record base because people well, and i mean people the dumb sheeps would believe anything that they see or hear and so the people that were you know were exploited were constantly having to set the record straight and now what we're seeing is not only is it boiled over into social media but it's also boiled over into mainstream main news outlets and that's a troubling sign of our time is that when we can't even trust the main news sources, but what we're seeing with what they're trying to do is no different than what the tabloids try to do. Is they try to stir well, things up so to get you agitated, you know, yeah. bring you down. But this you know? is the thing. This this is the thing, Bobby. If you want to basically gauge your success, okay, and and you can gauge your success the same way that I have based on what I'm going to tell you. When people go out of their way to do what these people have done to me, and then furthermore to you. That, that is the definition of success. At that point in time, those people are jealous of what I have created and how I have applied it and what I've been able to do where I don't give a damn about them. Okay, they're jealous of that fact. 
and they're jealous of the fact that you teamed up with me and we were able to shoot a series of videos about how to build these engines and we're able to go out and bust all these myths and cause people's bluffs when they spread misinformation. So when you want to judge your success, you judge it based on how popular you are against these tabloids and that's what they are. These people are the modern day tabloids like what you said. So yeah, that is the definition of success. Uh, it's not a dollar bill because when you, my, my dad always used to tell me, he says, you know, when you're pissing people off, you're getting somewhere, you know, and that's the thing because it's, it's very memorable. If you ever watch back, I mean, I never watched American Idol since Simon Cowell left, right? But I used to love watching <laughs> Simon. You know why? Because he didn't give a damn and I don't yeah. give a damn. And, yeah. and the way that Simon well, he would do it, say... he would say, he would say, you're very forgettable, right? And if somebody's forgettable, he, he would never want them to be on there. He would vote their ass off, right? But yeah. the people that were not forgettable were the ones that ended up being superstars. And I have a very unforgettable way of handling these things. I want people to either love me or hate me. There's no in-between. And moreover, I don't give a damn which camp you're in. Well, because at Simon, the end of the day, I'm here to build engines, and I'm here to build and develop components, and I'm here to spank everybody's ass in the industry. I'm not here to make friends. I don't care if any of these people are my friend in the industry. I don't care if the magazines are my friend. I don't care if PCA is my friend. I don't care if PC, you know, Porsche Cars North America or Porsche PAG is my friend. I don't give a damn about any of that. I am here to develop and to build. That's all I care about. Well, you know, you have to respect, you know, even if you don't agree with his methods, Simon Cowell would say, I say what most people think, but they're too cowards to actually have the guts to speak up. So basically, he's right. A lot of people don't. Yeah. They're too much of a coward to say what they really feel but, is right about these see, people. <laughs> the other thing is to today, to today, in the last three or four years, a guy like me or a guy like Simon or a guy like what you're talking about, now we're just like this, you know, it's that whole thing with toxic masculinity. That guy's a jackass. No, I'm just the guy that was raised to do things a certain way and to build what I want to build and to deal things the way I want to deal with them. And if I've got a problem with you, I'm going to do it. And my dad always taught me anytime I had a problem, anytime there was a question about what I should do, he would sit down and he would draw a circle, perfect circle. And he would say, okay, this right here represents trouble. And he would take and draw a straight line through the middle of it. And he would say, the only way around it is straight through the middle of it. And that's the way I look at this. The way around these people is by looking them in the eye right here on this freaking podcast and telling them if they want to challenge me to go right ahead. That's exactly the way I handle things. I don't care if they're standing toe to toe with me, postured up with me at my door, on my property, at my facility, or standing there as a freaking keyboard warrior, a gutless, ballless coward on a forum. I don't give a damn who they are. And you know, yes, my, I'm talking to both of you people. One of my favorite football players growing up was Herschel Walker. Of course, everybody knows Herschel Walker. Mm -hmm. But being in Georgia, you really know Herschel Walker. And I love what he says. He said, I had to run over a few people to meet my goals or my, to be successful. He ran over a lot of people. Yeah. And well, look in order at him to meet today. your look goals, at, if you, whatever you call success, yeah. Well, look at no. look at the things he does today. I mean, you know, look look at the way he still stands up for what he knows is right, even even because you know, not in politics or anything like that. But he has a certain stand against a lot of the things that we see going on today. He hasn't been popular since the freaking '80s, right? But he's still a lot of people that look up to a man's man recognize who Herschel Walker is because of how he's carried himself, you know. And in the way I look at this. You know, a smooth sea never made a skilled sailor. You know, if you've always been at sea and you've had, had nice, calm seas, you're not going to know what it's like when you're in 20-foot seas. No. I've been in a lot of 20-foot seas, and, and it don't bother me. You know, when you've had a four-star general stand in front of you and you've had to answer questions to him, there's nothing that any other 
human being on the face of this earth is going to say that's going to matter to you. When that person has graded you and you've flown on an aircraft with that person and you've crewed that person's aircraft or you've put chow on his, on his plate the way I have, there's nothing that another singular human being on the face of this planet is going to do or say to you that's going to make a freaking difference to you. It's just not going to happen. Sounds good, Jay. Well, um, you know, we have a, a, quite a bit of questions for you. Do you want to um, talk about some of the questions that come in on the comment section of our channel? Yeah, yeah. go, okay. go ahead. I'm, okay, I'm I know that, and, and just to let everybody know, you know, Jake tries to answer a lot of questions on the Facebook forums and uh, rent list and the outpost, but that's pretty much where he has to draw the line. He can't be everywhere. So one thing that we wanted to let people know is he can't monitor comments on YouTube. But when we do have a minute here on our Rencast, we'll try to answer as many of them as we can with a lot of them come in. But we can't guarantee that all of them will be answered. So. That being said, um, you just posted a video, Judd did, on corrosion and rust on Porsches. And Justin mm -hmm. was asking, are there any resources that you would recommend for protecting uh, the underneath of, the, of these cars, especially, I guess, if you're a northern car or southern Florida car, you know, where you're where, you know, exposed. Is there anything they can do? Is there any kind of treatment that you could put on these cars? Well, I mean, the thing is, again, the cars are old now. So if you already have corrosion, you need to worry about that corrosion not getting any worse, which means you need to do what we did with aircraft in the Marine Corps and do corrosion control. So a stainless steel, like a toothbrush, get into that car, get all the corrosion off. And then a good product that I've actually learned about working with the guys at Revs Institute. Now, again, this is an active museum, car museum, um, but it's about the future of the past. And Mr. Collier in Naples, Florida, Collier County, has done a great job at getting the top vehicles in the world and putting them in a gallery collection of about 300 vehicles that are everything from Bugattis to Formula One cars to Porsches. He has 550 Spider number one. He has cars the Porsche factory don't have, and I build engines for him. I'm currently working on the engine for his first Porsche 356. It started his collection. And to me, that's about the most significant car in the collection. And I think it is to him as well, because it's what started it. Uh, but at any, any rate, working with them, I've learned a lot about preservation of cars. And the first time I built an engine for him a few years ago, I said, hey, you know, do you want me to clear coat this crankcase? Because it was magnesium alloy and it was going to corrode. And they're in South Florida. So he's like, no, I don't want to do that. We don't do, we don't put anything on these engines that weren't there from the factory. I, I really appreciate that. Now it makes my job a lot more difficult uh, to do what I do at that level for him. But I like that. I like being challenged. But at the end of the day, he introduced me to BowShield, which is a product made for aviation by Boeing. Okay. It's B-O-E-S-H-I-E-L-D. And this is used as a corrosion preventer, okay? And you can spray it on the components. And he has somebody every week or two that goes over and coats a lot of the cars that are really, really at risk at revs with this on some of the components. And I've been using it on my engines. I've also used it on firearms. I've used it on some of my World War II military vehicles that I didn't want to have things corrode. And I've become a big fan of it. So it is something that is there to provide a corrosion preventive type of surface or corrosion resistant surface. Uh, there's also another one that I learned working on aviation called Corrosion X. You can buy that on Amazon. You can also buy the Bow Shield on Amazon. Um, to me, the Corrosion X is a little bit more aggressive than the uh, Bow Shield. To me, Bow Shield is a uh, preventative where the corrosion X is kind of a treatment and preventative. So if you already have corrosion going on, you want to treat that surface with something like the corrosion X. Um, but be, be forewarned, if you ever try to paint a part that's been treated with either of these two things, it's going to fish eye. Paint's not going to stick to it. You'll have to almost acid dip it to get the stuff off. So don't ever get it on the paint of the vehicle. Don't get it on your rims or anything like that that you do not want to have treated forever because it is very aggressive when it comes to that.
but we are seeing a lot of northern cars. Matter of fact, I'm getting ready to have to institute a surcharge for vehicles that have corrosion. Um, sometimes exhaust systems takes us a day worth of fighting these exhaust systems to get the fasteners loose or to replace studs and things like that. Um, and that's why so we it's becoming uh, a problem. And that's another question that you know we did a video on uh, replacing the coil packs and why we try to show a method of avoiding having to remove the exhaust because of that very reason because yeah. it, 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 it turns into a nightmare for people. But if you can change out your coil packs without having to remove your exhaust, you may have just saved yourself a lot of money and frustration. Yeah, but, I mean, that's the thing. And again, if you're buying a car that comes from up north, get under the freaking car. Make sure you get pictures. The brake lines are a major problem with rust. Uh, D Porto on the 996 forum, he had two of them rust out. I lost the brakes on his car testing it. Uh, the rear brakes failed because of corrosion on a brake line, okay? So um, that's a real life thing that happened to me, testing that person's car who's active on the 996 forum. Um, and he had to have them replaced when he got them home because we don't work on cars. You know, we did what we had to to patch it up so I can keep driving it. Um, but, and it really, we kind of finished most of the work on the dyno actually. But yeah, that's a problem. So you got to get underneath the cars. You know, if you're buying a car and bring a trailer, ask that person post underside pictures, the brake lines. Um, you know, if you see white corrosion on the suspension components and things like that, that's a telltale sign that you have corrosion. Now these cars don't rust out, okay? They, the bodies are excellent, but the suspension parts, especially if you're up north and they use that liquid salt stuff, it's a big problem because that and stuff bounces all over. Yeah, and the as uh, Judd was I mean, the problem, pointing out the, the fasteners. Yeah, the problem with the liquid stuff is it, it splashes everywhere. So back in the old days when they actually used salt, it would stay on the road and fling up under the fender wells and stick there. If you went and washed that off, you were okay if you neutralized it. Now this liquid crap goes everywhere. It goes up on top of the gearbox. It goes up on top of the engine. It corrodes a power steering pump. Um, so these cars are old now, and it is definitely becoming a widespread problem, and I can't keep on just kind of taking it on my chin. We're going to have to start charging for dealing with it. Okay, so the next question comes, I believe it's motor failure 24, the IMS drive sprocket separation. Mm -hmm. Question is, how do you prevent this from happening? I kind of know the answer, but... Yeah, you really don't. How do you address you, this? You, you don't. You either have bad, bad luck or good luck. You either have Murphy's Law or you don't. Um, with that failure, the only way you can prevent that from happening is if you build the engine and you either weld and or pin the IMS sprocket onto the engine, okay, or onto the IMS. So that IMS shaft is made up of four pieces, okay? One sprocket on one end, the tube, a second drive sprocket, and then the housing bore, okay? That's what really makes the IMS assembly. So you're not preventing that unless the engine comes apart. It's not one we see very often. I've probably seen it five times in the last 50 years. It doesn't really happen a lot, and most engines that we're going to have it happen have already had it happen. Um, but, you know, if you do an over-rev, if you downshift real hard, if you miss a shift, uh, if you zing the engine, if you let some tuner doesn't know what he's doing, turn the rev limiter up over stock, which we never do, those things will allow that to become more prevalent and be more of a chance of happening, okay? Um, but yeah, either with that one, you either have it happen or you don't. It's like a broken timing chain. You know, you either have it happen or you don't, or a, a drop valve seat. I mean, of the 31 modes of failure in these engines that I've been able to find over the last 15 or 18 years or whatever it's been, um, the vast majority of them have no preventative. The most major of them do have a preventative. And the most major of them, I believe, is the IMS bearing failure. That's the one that has a preventative as long as your car is in mid-05 or earlier. Okay, so the, the next question is regarding the IMS solution. The, Andy is asking, where does the oil go after it passes through the IMS? after it goes through the bearing, basically. Okay, so the IMS solution it uses, it uses a, a plug that goes in the back of the intermediate shaft, <clears throat> and basically that is designed so 
it doesn't have oil fill the intermediate shaft, okay? We did not want the oil level to ever drop in operation because the intermediate shaft got filled with oil and it was going to take a matter of time for that oil to return to the sump. Then somebody checks their oil and it shows you that you have an, a low oil level. There are some other products out there that are not thoroughly developed and they run with a IMS tube full of oil. So you're always going to have an inadequate amount of oil in the sump, either too much or not enough. Um, and that's a problem. So we did block that so you wouldn't have a small reservoir inside the intermediate shaft that holds about half a quart of oil or in that neighborhood. Okay. So when the oil returns after doing its job at the IMS solution, it's only about one cc of oil per minute. That's all it is because it has resistance to flow. Other things that are out there that use a oil feed, okay, are spraying an uncontrolled amount of oil against the dynamic component, creating windage. What we have is oil being delivered internally into a component that is then using that oil to carry the loads of the intermediate shaft, both radially and longitudinally. After that oil has done its job at about one to two cc's per minute, it's never really been more than two cc's per minute based on a flow meter I've put in the line, okay? Once it it's done its job, then it just returns back down to the sump because the sump is right below it. Um, so this is a very minuscule amount of oil. You're talking about a thimble full of oil is all we're talking about. So it's not enough to create windage problems, not enough to create a loss of oil pressure. I've never seen a loss of oil pressure with this, even though I've put about 11 different oil pressure sensors on the same engine at the same time all over the engine. And that's when we messed with the size of the holes in the IMS solution the size of the feed holes in the IMS solution, spin on oil filter adapter, and all that sort of thing. And primarily, I was able to look at the oil pressure at three locations. One was at the spin on filter adapter, and the other two were in each cam cover. So I had a three position switch with one very high quality aviation gauge, and I could move between those three sensors and see what the oil pressure was using the same gauge at three different places. And I did that with various oil temperatures, areas, various oil viscosities. I even did that on, as part of the 8,800 mile trip that Charles Navarro and I did going from Cleveland, Georgia to Edmonton, Alberta, Canada and back in a 10 day period. And we were doing that type of study. So to answer that question, the oil returns back to the sun. To basically further clarify that, don't worry about it. Sounds good. Okay, moving on to. Uh... The big one, the, a real common problem is misfires. So uh, this guy's name is Toyo, like Toyota maybe. <laughs> but he's saying I have a 1999 Boxer 2.5 liter. I'm getting codes uh, saying it's misfiring on cylinders four, five, and six. I found that the exterior of the uh, coil pack on number four has cracks all in it. I'm also getting an O2 code saying the O2 sensor is ahead of the catalytic converter. And he's asking for help. Any ideas? Well, I mean, first off, if those codes are happening, you know, on, on bank two as well, uh, first off, that pre-cat sensor is what drives the DME's enrichment. So if that sensor is aged or it's giving an erroneous voltage or it's lazy or whatever the case may be, it is going to drive the enrichment for that bank. So the first thing I would do is I would look at the fuel trim values. And if the fuel trim values are off, then that tells us either adding or taking away fuel. If you know how to read fuel trim, you can do that. Um, you know, ultimately, I would say probably change that sensor, but is the code for oxygen sensing or oxygen sensor? There's a big difference because if it's for oxygen sensing, the first thing that I would start thinking is he has a vacuum leak. He has a crack somewhere in the intake. He has a, a, a you know, he has false air being inducted and the oxygen sensing is out of range. So all too often people get a code and they see the oxygen sensor and immediately they, oh, I've got to buy an oxygen sensor, but they don't see oxygen sensing versus oxygen sensor. Okay, so the, the, the code for an aging O2 basically would mean that O2 sensor is probably bad. Okay, so, you know, at that point in time, if I see oxygen sensing, 
then I'm going to start looking at fuel trims and I'm going to start looking for vacuum leaks. Okay. I'm going to sneak around with a little bit of propane or I'm going to do a smoke test and I'm going to see if I have a vacuum leak somewhere in the intake manifold um, because more than likely I might find that. And oxygen sensing being off is going to create a lean condition. That lean condition will make the fuel trim try to accommodate it, but it can only do that about 25%. Once it gets out of that range, it'll throw that code for oxygen sensing, and it's going to make that engine lean out, and it can make it misfire. So if you have problems with a bank 2, the O2 sensor, and you're are sensing, and you have cylinders four, five, and six, all of which are on bank two, throwing misfires, two and two together tells me you probably have that as your primary underlying condition and it's causing the misfires, okay? Um, but, you know, a, a crack in a coil pack, I've seen a lot of coil packs that get really cracked and never misfire. Usually they'll only misfire if they're cracked if you have a high humidity condition, you're driving the car in the rain. A lot of times those cracks are in a non-significant part of the coil pack, okay? So yeah, definitely Toyo, I would look into your, what code it is. You may go look and see what code that actually is and post that code back. And then I will tell you what I think about that particular code or codes that you may have, because the difference in sensing and sensor are a huge difference as far as diagnostics go. Okay. Lots of uh, cylinder bore scoring questions. I don't know that we're going to have enough time to answer all of them since this is the big topic. As these cars hit 20 years old, more and more of these questions are coming in. More and more people are, are noticing the, the ticking noise. Well, and, 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 like and also it's awareness, right? Somebody on 996 forums like, well, we wouldn't be seeing all these if it wasn't for you guys doing these videos. No, because people would still be thinking they had a bad lifter. They would still be wasting money about trying to fix a lifter that's not a lifter problem if you guys hear a lifter noise or if your mechanic says you have a lifter noise i will tell you again very clearly okay the m9x engine does not have noisy lifters that give problems okay if these cars have a lifter problem it is truly an underlying lifter concern they will throw misfires for that okay so toyo in our last question could have a lifter problem that could be throwing his misfires because that boxsters are worse about doing that than 911s are. I can listen to the exhaust note and tell you, I've even sent you a video of a car that had bad lifters. Those lifters never made a ticking sound. They would only make a bobble in the exhaust followed by the misfire counter going crazy and the engine roughness counter going up. Okay, period. I know how to diagnose that from 50 feet away. Okay but they never make noise. If you have a lifter noise, you do not have a lifter problem. I will guarantee it, it doesn't happen. Is there a case that you have the one out of 500? Yes. So you always have to make sure. But if we did not share what we've been sharing about this, Bobby, we would have guys like the customer of mine a couple of years ago that spent $14,000 replacing his lifters then that didn't fix the problem. This car's at a dealership, by the way. That did not fix his problem. He ended up having to have them replace the camshaft because after they replaced the lifters, it's still making noise. Well, because they replaced the wrong thing. That's like going in to have a total knee done on your left knee. When you come out of surgery, they've done it on your right knee. That's called malpractice. These freaking assholes that are doing the work on these cars should be able to be super malpractice because they don't know what they're doing because they have not been exposed to solving these things. Okay. So this guy spends 14 grand. He finally sends me the car. I diagnosed a bore scoring in 30 minutes and conclusively proved that was there to begin with after he spent 14 grand. So what does he do? He sells a car broken, classic broken heart, classic $14,000. And this guy, was an enlisted sailor out of Norfolk, Virginia. He didn't have the money to do this. He saved the money the entire time he was deployed, okay? And they did the wrong thing to this car. And I've still got all the documentation about it. And I, I solved it. He sold the car to another customer of mine and I fixed it and I've got all the pictures of all the internal bore scoring. 
but yeah, so that's the thing. If we didn't do what we were doing, we would still have cars that are misdiagnosed and people fixing lifter problems that aren't lifter problems. So if you're one of those jackasses that want to say that we're over-educating people, then I want you to understand there's no such thing as having too much knowledge. And by the way, I'm going to remind you, I'm giving you this chunk of my life for free. So don't bitch. <laughs> That's right. Well, I, again, I, you know, there's, there's so many questions that come in regarding selling divorce going. I, I know we're not going to have time. So I'll try to hit on a few of them and then we'll um, have to pick it up another time, I guess. But Sergio is asking, I have a 2006 Boxster S, the M96.26. Would this engine uh, be affected by cylinder bore score? Nope. It's one of the few. So the M9626 and M9625, um, those engines do not have bore scoring. I have never, not once, ever seen it happen. Now, is that because of the cast pistons? Uh, it's because with of everything. Uh, again, it's not one particular thing. It is the formula that that engine has between the rod to stroke ratio, the piston, the ring package, all of those things. It has the same cylinders as all these problematic cars have, okay, which helps prove my narrative about what drives this because they still have the same lock cylinder, right? But the piston composition is different. The ring is different. The rod to stroke ratio is different. The connecting rod length is different. All those things are different. Now, if that car was a year newer, it would have an M9721 engine in it, which is the same as the Cayman S from 06 to 08. And then it would be susceptible to bore scoring, which we see happen very prevalent in that engine series, M9721, okay? But that car is one of the ones that we have never seen a case of bore scoring. Okay, never, not once ever. So if anybody wants to take notes about this, these are the cars we've never seen have bore scoring. Okay, M9620, M9622, okay, M9623, M9624, okay? Let me think about this. M9625, M9626, and M9722. Those are the ones that we've never seen have a problem. If you have any of the other 17, we have seen it happen. And yes, I do have all that memorized. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, so moving, moving right along. Um, this is a nine alpha one engine here. I don't even know if we want to go down that rabbit hole. Well, so let's talk about that real quick. So you are seeing, and when I say we, I'm not talking about it flat six. Collectively, we, me and you on these forums, are seeing people talking about M90, you know, M9-alpha-1 failures now, the 09 and newer cars. I want to say that those cars now represent one half of my workload at flat six. I want to say those cars now have one of my engine builders, all he does are those, okay? He's the one that is the most experienced with them, and that's all he's doing. I've got another builder, half of his work, or about half of his work, or maybe let's say a third of his work at this point, are nine alpha ones. They're their own beast a little bit, so that's the reason why I've got one person who's basically gone through the gauntlet, and that's all he's doing. But we're seeing these things fail. And they are proving to be very robust in most ways, okay? They have a few things that, that jump out. A lot of them are, have been swept under the rug. People have not learned about them, things like that. We built our first one of these in February of 2010. That's the very first one we did. The car was called Cayman X. It was covered in the December 2013 panorama, I believe it was. It was either December 2012 or January 2013. I can't remember. One of those two. Um, in the article called Cayman X, okay? And it goes over the 4.2 liter engine we built from a 3.4. That was the first engine like that in the world that had been taken apart. I took the car apart when it had only a few thousand miles on it. My record is taking apart a 9 Alpha 1 that had 11 miles on a brand new car. And the record before that was taking apart a crate 9 Alpha 1 that was from the factory and had never been ran outside the factory. Um, so we're well experienced with these, and we do know what makes them tick, literally. Um, 
they are seeing bore scoring. We normally see bore scoring on an M9X engine on cylinder six. We see more prevalence in bore scoring on cylinder one. With an okay, well, that just, so, just answers this guy's question. Because he says, I have a 2009 Carrera S. After it warms up, I have a loud ticking noise coming from what seems to be cylinder number one. Yeah, he's I'm it's, not it's, getting any misfires, but I could this not be yet, not yet. He needs to, he needs he needs to go ahead, reply to him, and say, you know, buy this. Go on Amazon, get that link, and tell him to buy the bore scope. He can pull that spark plug out, and he'll find it more than likely. You know, make sure that cylinder's at bottom dead center. With that one, he won't even have to do the sump inspection more than likely to find that particular one. Um, it's probably going to be pretty prevalent if it's doing it that consistently. But we're seeing this, and we're going to continue seeing this. Um, you know, my record, the newest report that I've had of bore scoring to 2018 is my newest report. I'm getting numerous reports now from 2014, 2015 cars. Um, I even had a report of a 2015 turbo that I sent to you. I uh, had a report of a 2017 GT3 as well. Um, because remember, you know, the GT3 and turbo cars, GT2s do not have the Metzger engine anymore. They haven't had it. The last one got rid of it circa 2013. Uh, the turbo got rid of it circa 2011. So anything beyond those, we are seeing some semblance of bore scoring from time to time. Um, but that's for another another set of technical videos, obviously. But you know, are those engines robust more than the nine alpha more than the M96? The jury's still out in a lot of ways. You know, I'm not a fan of the nine alpha one. I don't like direct injection. I don't like the fact that now we don't have a valve getting cooled by a charge of fuel. I don't like the fact that we see all the coking of the the carbon in the intake tract. Um, I don't like the fact that if you ever need to change the injectors, more than likely you're not going to pull them out of those cylinder heads. Uh, we've had to make tooling to get those injectors out of the heads, which requires the head to come off. So if you're having an injector problem, an injector driving problem, if you're having something like that go on, now it's basically a cylinder head off thing. So I've worked on a tool that you can help get those injectors out in the car with, but it's also still hit or miss. So there are things about those engines I just don't like. There's also things about those cars I just don't like because the cars got too big. They got even more complex. Uh, they are too far removed from a Porsche for me. This is just my personal feelings. Uh, after a 9971, the car got too big for me. Um, so, you know, we'll work on any of them. I mean, you know, all this stuff's our bread and butter. And of course, you know, um, I, maybe I'll change my mind over time. but at this point in time, we know what we have to work with with the M9X, and we continue to find new things to work with every few weeks or months when it comes to the 9-Alpha-1. Well, I think we could just end on, on this question. There's so many bore scoring questions. We'll be here all, all night long trying to answer them. But this, this person was watching um, part 10 of the bore scoring and related to the M97 um engine and he was just speculating about the fair stand um skirt co coating and he's saying he's asking do you have any suspicions that some of the causes of skirt coating loss may be from the quality of the fuel and associated additives along with some variations in manufacturing changes to the skirt coating themselves yeah totally and we already know that bore scoring is not the primary failure, guys. Bore scoring is the result of the skirt coating being compromised and losing its adhesion. So whether when Mala and Schmidt were working on all this stuff between the ferro stand and the, you know, the, the, the ferro, the, the plastic version, there's two different ones in my, in my mind. Yeah, the ferroprint, what the hell am I thinking? Between ferrostand and ferroprint, there's a difference there. And we definitely see the ferroprint failing more than the ferrostand these days. The thing is, when the print fails, it doesn't leave anything behind as a telltale sign. The ferrostand, we're finding that picked up in the oil, oil pump screens. We're finding that in the magnetic drain plugs because it is magnetic. It is ferrous. Okay, that's where the ferro comes from. 
And, and when I find that, some guy will say, hey, I found this in my oil. Dude, you got bore scoring, period. It's going to happen because the, the piston's compromised. So we, we talk about bore scoring all the time, but we should be talking about piston failure. That's what's causing this. That is the underlying thing, right? Um, it's almost like, you know, corona. You know, it's like, okay, the guy has coronavirus, but did the coronavirus kill him or did some of the other things he had that were underlying that the corona attacked killing? You see what I'm saying? So that's one of those things, which, of course, everything now, the corona death, hell, your dog had died at well, Exactly. Right? I mean, our father has to be very careful. He has pulmonary fibrosis. So he has that yeah. pre-existing condition. So um, if he get, gets the coronavirus, it, it attacks the lungs and it will kill him pretty much. Well, it's just like yeah. in the same thing it is with this. If it's anything to do with the piston skirt coating failing or any of that, it's bore scoring, right? It's just that that's how it gets characterized because ultimately it does lead to the bore scoring and the bore scoring is the thing that leads to the smoking and it's what leads to the misfires and the ticking sound is all that. So definitely you know, it's which happened first, the chicken or the egg. In this case, the ferroprinter ferro stand failed. It made the like materials that comprise the piston and the cylinder wall to touch each other. Okay. The oil couldn't do its job well enough because these are like materials. And then you have a galling type of effect where the wear goes up and that causes the scoring. Okay. Um, but yes, I do believe that fuel quality and fuel quantity play a major role in this. There's a reason, Bobby, why we only saw a few bore scoring cases until January of 2018. And then it's just like you turned on a switch. And it now makes up for 85% of the engine work that we do on all these Porsche engines, all of them, 9-Alpha-1 and M9X, okay? 85% is that. The other 15% is, you know, IMS bearing failures or elective work, okay? But, but generally speaking, I've got 66 engines on my board right now. And Judd and I were talking the other day, and of the ones that are on the board, currently 70% of the ones on the board have bore scoring, conclusive bore scoring, Okay. And people are continuing to drive them. We get, put them on a regimen of oil, what they can do. They can continue driving it, use this oil, change it this frequently, use this fuel, run sea foam twice as much of a dose, and nurse it along until we can get it worked into the schedule to get the car picked up. And we're having good results doing that. We're not seeing people with massive failures and catastrophic losses. They continue to keep driving the car because it's their only car sometimes, or they just want to keep enough miles on it. The tires don't get flat spotted or whatever. The battery doesn't go dead, stuff like that. Um, so yes, to answer that question directly, fuel is a major contributing factor because there's nothing else that all of these cars share other than fuel. Not all the cars we see share the same oil. Not all the cars we see share the same driver. They don't share the same environment. I have cars here from 20 states right now, Bobby and from three different countries, okay? And even those cars from other countries are arguably here, sometimes it's an elective job. Actually, two of the three right now are elective. The third one lost an IMS bearing. But those cars are not failing from what we see as much for bore scoring. Now, if you talk to the guys at Hartec, Lee, the guy I know at Hartec really well, they see as much bore scoring and arguably sometimes more than we do in the UK. I think that may be because of fuel too. I don't know. But there's a reason why we saw maybe three or four or five bore scoring cases a year. There's a reason why I used to get maybe 20 bore scoring tickets a year or emails. Now, and even before we started this video stuff, we saw in January of 2018, I sold like seven months worth of engines in a three-month period. And it was bore scoring, bore scoring, bore scoring. That's when Wild Bill had his bore scoring happen. Okay. He was one of the first ones. It was right in there, man. He had it going on. And we've seen it happen in more and more like that. So there is a common denominator. There's a constant with this that stays the same across the country. It doesn't matter anymore if you're in a cold climate. 
And I think maybe the cold climate stuff wasn't the cold driving it, even though it made a factor. I think it was the winter blend fuels in those cold climates that were driving it. And Lake Speed and I have already determined that different fuels will drive oil consumption with these engines as well. Even a perfectly healthy engine will burn more oil on winter blend fuel, especially a certain brand, than it will on a summer blend fuel of the same, same brand. So yeah, totally. I, I, I believe that the fuel is a driving factor. And I've been doing a lot of fuel testing lately. I've been running tests on Rec 90 fuel, which is a recreational fuel. I've talked a lot about it on these podcasts. Um, and I've actually found a couple of my newer vehicles, which are in the mid-90s that I was running that fuel in, didn't like it. My 993 doesn't like it. Uh, my Mercedes 500E doesn't like it. Um, it's kind of unique how that happens. I've also got an AutoZam AZ1, which is a 1992 little car imported from Okinawa, Japan. It's right-hand drive, three-cylinder turbo, spends 9,000 RPM, going doors. It's one of my weird cars. It also doesn't like the Rec 90 fuel. But all my old stuff loves it. And I've been doing some tests on the dyno with Rec 90 in some of these M9X cars. On the older cars, the Rec 90 on the dyno always makes more power compared to the regular 93. Uh, even though it's 90 octane as rated, it will make more power on an older carbureted car with a conventional ignition system than the modern ethanol laden fuel well on the same dyno, same day, after draining the fuel and changing it out. But the modern cars will see no gain and sometimes a loss from the Rec 90 fuel. Um, it is very enlightening what we see with fuel testing today. That's all the time we have for this episode of Rencast. I want to thank you so much for watching and supporting Rendition here on YouTube. I want to encourage you to become a, a member of Rendition. That's a little different than becoming a subscriber. With your membership, you get access to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. We hope that you will join us and support this channel and future episodes of Ringcast. We thank you so much for watching. Have a great week.